<laughs> Look, when we say historical romance is the closest thing to is closer to fantasy than it is to anything else, I think yeah. we're not lying. <laughs> I just love it. I love it so much. I love I really love it so much. I mean, obviously I love it, right? Because it's also my job, but like, man, a great historical just hits the spot. <laughs> I think it's because the fantasy is different, right? Mm-hmm. Like straight up in a historical romance, you are gonna like Inigo Mantoya, like you know, like cut somebody's face, and then it'd be it's gonna be fine. They're not gonna be able to do anything about it. <laughs> They're just gonna have to like slink oh, yeah. off with their There's tail between no their legs. No repercussion at all. No, for anything. <laughs> just I have to eat that. Okay, good. I like that. You know what? Come back and let me give you another one on the other side. That's what I want. <laughs> well, welcome everyone to Fate of Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and critic. And this week we are talking about Her Night with the Duke by Diana Quincy. It's sublime. Diana is a truly superb historical writer. I mean, I'm sure she's superb at the other stuff she writes too. She also writes mysteries, but... This book is sublime. It's so, I told you, I mean, I put it, so this is familiar to some of you because I put it on our best of the year list for 2020 because I loved it so much. And so those of you who ordered the Faded Maids book box from Old Old Town Books or who um, have spent any time like reading the best of the year books from from (laughs) bygone eras (laughs) have known that I have a deep abiding love for Diana Quincy and this particular book. But this is the first time Jen has read it. I mean, there's just so many books. Sorry, like literally that axiom. You can't get to them all. So many books, so little time is real. And there's a point at which like it kind of goes past you and you think, well, one day I'll get to it. And then sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. But man, I am really happy that I got to this one because I I enjoyed it. And I have so much I want to talk about. About Yes. I think this book is like really answers a lot of questions that many readers have about the way, about the emotional and plotting beats of a romance. That's one of the things I really oh, want to talk Oh, that's about. a really good way of thinking about it. So I spent a lot of time, well, I'm going to save it. I, ha- okay. I have like a big theme thing that I want to talk about, but we can we can come back to it at the end, like later. This is a book where I think we're going to talk about a lot of big questions that are currently part of the romance discourse, right? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. And I, 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 I mean, I think you can, I just think it really lends itself well. It's so perfect. So why don't we start off? You want to do a little plot summary? Yeah, but you're better at them. Okay, fine. I mean, we're going to go back to season one style. You start. I'll start. Okay, so. <laughs> I'll just like jump in with excited yes. utterances. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Uh, our two main characters meet on the road, right? It's an English coaching inn. And um, Hunt is our Duke. He's there for or romance reasons, I guess, Duke reasons. And he sees a woman who's trying to essentially check in to her, at, at for her own room, but she's unaccompanied by anything but a servant. And they're speaking in another language, so everyone can tell that she is not, you know, a good English girl, I guess. And, you know, she is she faces a lot of immediate, not only resistance, but uh, threats, right? She She's in danger. And he's really outraged by this, and so he kind of stands up and... And they end up... Tries to duke at them. Yeah, right, sure. And they end up... um, (laughs) He ends up essentially offering his room to her, 
or they're in uh, wait already. Together. I'm gonna have to excitedly yeah. utterance. Okay. She like whips out a knife and threatens these guys with like yes. a giant curved yes. knife blade. Yes, from the Middle East, like brought back from the Middle East. Right, terrific. Right, it was great. Oh god, and yeah. it's, this is like page four, and I'm like, yes, yeah, right. <laughs> and the thing that's so then they end up together in his room, and they have this. <sighs> so good. Oh god, they have this amazing one night stand. Right? Chapter one, she gets to it. Yeah, she's a widow, and he and she hasn't been with anyone. You know, she was a young woman. She was married. She was 17 when she was married, and she's, I think, what, 29 now, 27 now, has been married, widowed for two years, hasn't been with anybody since, and sort of is like, why not? And he is just like, I'm on my way to get betrothed to someone who I'm okay, but I this attraction we have. And let me tell you, this One Night Stand delivers. It is the first four chapters of the book. It's five, maybe great. even. Great. It's so good. And it's so hot. hot. Yes. And he is just perfect. So then, you know, they agree one night only. We're never going to see each other again. And they do it like all over the room. Like, oh, I mean, yeah. it's all night long, all over the it's room. It's like exactly what you want from a one night stand. Like, they're both aware of the fact that their lives are proceeding apace and they have one shot at just like the greatest night ever. Yeah, I would like to talk more about that too. Okay, so anyway, they have one night stand. They agree. We're, you know, we're never going to see each other again. That's fine. He's going to go on his merry way to, um, he's, Going to be marry Victoria. To marry Victoria. And she is going to go on her merry way to see her stepdaughter, who is really more like her best friend because they're pretty close in age. Guess what, everybody? <laughs> they're the same person. I mean, they've all listened to Fate of Mates long enough that they know how this goes. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> he just slept with her stepmother. It's awkward. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, there they are together and they figure it out. And it it just goes on from there. That moment, it, they're like, frozen at each other in a room full of people. And it reminded me of passion. Yes. I mean, I think that's one of the best moments in, in historic. I think historicals does this like better Mm -hmm. than all the other genres because there's so much propriety required. There can't, you can't just like go, Oh, I'm sorry. I have to take this call or like, (laughs) I have to pee, like, excuse me and get out. Like you are stuck there in the moment of revelation being watched by footmen and also others. <laughs> she throws up at his feet. And I it literally was like, yes. It was so devastating to her and me. And I just want him, you know, she barfed on him and it was fine with me. But also like super, super great because now she could just be sick and avoid him. Oh yeah. Very smart. Very smart. So if you can barf on command, this is a good use for it. <sighs> this is a good use for it. Oh, I'm in a real awkward position and I'm, I'm in a historical. My phone can't ring. Got to take. This. I'm in a historical. Yeah. I'm in a historical. So let me vomit. Anyway, I'm sorry. I don't really like to talk about vomit a lot, but oh, I thought whatever. it was used. Kate Claiborne, um, we're done now. Right. Great effect right here. So that's it. That's the like the opening of this book and it's brilliant and it's brilliant from from there on in because although there are a lot of things in this book that you think you know where they're going to go, mm-hmm. they get there in a way that is unexpected mm-hmm. and brilliant and I loved it. This book from the jump – Gave me, like, big Lorraine Heath vibes. Mm, yeah. Because it has that kind of how, I, I mean, I'm on the record as feeling like there are there are a handful of historical authors who do the, like, how the hell is this ever going to work out yes. plot better than anyone. And 
when you're in a historical and the plot is they are engaged to another person, it's hard to underscore to people who don't kind of understand the historical world how how hand tying that is like right. it is a binding thing where like if the if the marriage goes south everyone if the everyone's ruined start to finish and it gave me uh, on the reread this week i couldn't help but think about bridgerton yeah so one there's so much talk in the world right now about like read alikes mm-hmm. if you loved bridgerton then you'll love if you loved season 2 of bridgerton This is the book for you. Yeah. Her Night with the Duke. I think it's the book because of the, like, emotional, like, will they or won't they? There's this commitment to a person who, who, like, one of them really loves desperately and the other one. And Tori's a good person. You know, it's not like she's some nightmare. He comes to admire her. I think this, the part that's, like, be, like the devastating part of this book, everybody, is, just like, similar to Bridgerton. As usual with deep dives, you guys, if you're worried about spoilers, don't listen. Like, go read the book and then come back. You know, he's just going to visit Tori to kind of, like, I mean, his intention is to offer for her, but he hasn't done it yet. Down so the road, yeah. So there's still this wiggle room at the beginning. And the part where it really, like, so you're kind of like, well, maybe he won't or, you know, what's going to happen? And then there's this part where he he offers for her and he doesn't tell Leela. And the next day, Leela finds out and he goes to her and he says, I did this for you. And she oh, says. Oh, it's heartbroken. I know. And he repl- and he tells her, I knew if I didn't do it right away, I'd never be able to do it. And I was already laying down. But had I been standing up, I would have had to lay down. Because they both know they can't, you know, they're like, no, yeah. they can't be together. No. So maybe we could start talking about why they feel like they can't be together. Because I do think this is also a really good example of, like, how motive and a character's understanding of who they are drive, mm-hmm. has to drive in a believable way all everything that happens after. So... She, let me talk about her. Maybe you can talk about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leela was married at 17 to her father's uh, best friend. He was an older man. Um, He was probably almost 50 at that point. And, you know, he's... He was an earl. She was the daughter of a Marquess. Okay. So Leela's um, half Arab. She's Arab-English or British. She's Arab-British. She had her mother. It's sort of like vaguely waves at, like, possibly Palestinian. Yeah. Because there's a lot of talk about Gaza and her going to visit her family in Gaza. But her mother uh, was the daughter of a wealthy um, Arab merchant in England, in Manchester, which had a large, historically has had a large Arab community, um, Arab immigrant community, mostly merchant class and trading class in the 19th century. So her uh, mother was the daughter of a merchant, and her father was a a Marquess. And they met and fell in love, and he married his, you know, his friend's daughter. Like, essentially, he married... His business partner's daughter. His business partner's daughter. And she became a marchioness, and uh, they had Leela. 
and others. Lila and a brother, and, right? A brother who is the hero of the book that just came out, The Marquis Made Me Do It. Which, woo, I can't wait to get my hands on that. So everyone calls her father the Mad Marquis because— Because he married— Right, why didn't he just down. bed her? There was no reason for him to marry her. And and her mother was—it's um, really interesting. Leela loves, loved her parents, but her mother was, like, kind of, for the most part, kept— her background, her Arab background and culture, essentially like a secret from the kids. And only at the very end does Leela find out that like twice a year, her mother would just go back for a week or two and spend time with her family to kind of recharge with them and never took the kids. And she never spoke a word of Arabic with the family. Like she did not impart her culture. The only relative that Leela knew was her well, her grandparents, right? CT and her grandmother, for sure, she knew. And then she got married young. Yeah. Because her her father was, I think, get sick or dying and wanted to make sure that his daughter was taken care of. And so she marries her father's friend, someone who's much older than her. And, you know, we An see Earl. this a lot in romance. And usually it is portrayed as them being, like, kind of scummy old men. But he was a good man, and he took care of her. And she— Although she's his second wife. Right. Although she didn't love him, I think she respected him, and I think she regretted that she couldn't give him more children, which he seemed to be interested in doing. She's barren. Um, And this— Well, we should say she thinks she's she's, barren. Well, it's a historical, and so I'm sure no one's surprised to know that was— There's a baby epilogue, but whatever. So in the two years since her husband died, she left— she doesn't even stick around for the will to get read, which is going to have some plot impact. She goes to the Middle East, and she travels, and then she— For two years. Yeah, and then she she learns Arabic. She uh, gets a Drago man, someone to essentially teach her Arabic and be her guide. And then she ends up writing a couple of travel logs that are published in England under, of course, the pen name everyone assumes is a man. And are, like, beloved. Everybody's obsessed with them. And she really doesn't see any advantage to marrying again because it would impact her ability to do this thing she loves, just travel the world and write about it. Mm-hmm. And she also doesn't see why she would ever put herself in the position again of having society uh, – giving society a reason to comment on her, on her appearance, on her background, on her ethnicity, on her culture, right? She's just like, fuck that. I did it once, and I'm not doing it again. Well, she's lived an entire life with, like, a father who was the mad Marquess, and then her husband who was judged for marrying her. Right. And so, and I think one of the things that Diana does so well in this book is— she doesn't hand wave the racism or the the disdain that the aristocracy and others have for Leela. But it is, it's so deftly built into her character as like a motivation for her to just, like she just doesn't want to f- deal with these fuckers. And I think it played out in two really interesting ways for mm-hmm. me in like, like kind of brilliantly written into the text. So there's one way at the beginning where like in the night, the first night, you know, the, the one night stand where Hunt is like, you know, you were traveling alone in the Middle East? How is that safe? And she was kind of like, oh, as safe as what happened down at the front counter when I tried to yeah. check into this hotel. And I was like, thank you. 
right? Like, yeah. she's not safe here in jolly old England either, right? And no. And I think it was – but the part that was really interesting to me is that most of the um, – the disdain and the cultural, like, shaming or, you know, the racism, all the ways it plays out, it it comes from white women in society, and it happens when they are alone with – when they think men are not present. Yes. And yes, I was like, oh, this is – that feels so real. Mm-hmm. The one time Aunt Helene kind of gets busted, she's kind of like, oh, I, I didn't mean that at all. And you're like, bitch, you mm-hmm. meant that? And I thought that was also a really brilliant way of showing how the the like racism and assumptions are happening at different levels depending on when and who uh, Leela is with. Yes, I mean, I thought the layers of this, like the other piece that I thought was really fascinating, that she so you know widows hold a really interesting place in romance period because um, they are off. There is a lot of freedom that comes with. Being a widow in historicals, the a freedom that you don't have when you are an unmarried, like available, like of age, you know, right? Single lady, spinster, I guess. Spinster. Um, there is a freedom in widowhood that often is portrayed in romances as being like a, a sexual freedom on the part of the heroine. Right, which is in here, right? Yeah. There is there is a lot of that in here, but there is the reverse too, which is an absolute disrespect. Suddenly, yes. like when you are no longer quote protected, yes, by a man, then the gloves are off, and like you're basically available to everybody. Yeah, and there's that scene in the Dower House where so the new Earl, her her stepson, yeah, his yeah her husband's heir, is who yeah is is about her age and you know just awful. Yeah, has tried like basically has lied to her. Like she has his, her husband took care of her. He when he died, his will set gave her a parcel of land, set her up with a. Um, an allowance that would keep her forever, happily. And her stepson is not only like, you get nothing. I want no part of you at, like, what is it? Is it Helene at one point who says, like, this is time, it's time for um, Victoria's real family to help her. Like, we don't need you any longer. Right, this kind of isolating of her and othering of her from the family. Um, but then also he's at one point she realized like she's standing in the dower house, and she at this point she knows that she owns this house. This house right. belongs to her. And the brother and the I'm sorry, not brother, the the new earl, her stepson is like, Well, you can have it, but I then you get to be my mistress. Like right. then I come here, I get to come whenever I want and use you. And he and it it's coded not just as like you're a weak like woman it's also like the it's the layers the intersectionality of like that moment where it's like and you've been in the middle east for 2 years and so clearly like you've been whoring around yeah you've been dirty yes. there and it it really just it, every note of this book is just Per, it just hits on every level. Yeah. It does so much of the work that historicals have done for so many years and in like a new, yes, like a fresh way. This week, 
week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by author Kelly Kane and her romance novel, An Acquired Taste. Listen, it's a chef romance. We were made for each other. It sounds like a great premise. I'm so excited. Here's the deal. So after four years at a top culinary school, Rowan Townsend, our heroine, is working as the head chef in her mother's restaurant, where basically these two women have spent like all they have building this like farm to table, pure passion project that everybody loves. But the restaurant is too small. They need to expand. How are you going to get a quick money in this economy? You're going to go on to a televised competition like Top Chef. I love it. I love all of this. But here's the thing. Her nemesis from culinary school, Knox Everhart. (laughs) Which is an amazing romance name. Obviously. He is there to give her a run for her money, and he wants the money to, like, prove to, you know, whomever that he's great. Knox is, like, old school money, food, empire family, and she is new school, just passion project. And the two of them together are going to duke it out in the kitchen and on the show and also, let's be honest, probably in bed. I hope so. My goodness. I mean, that's what I want. Look it. Everyone loves enemies to lovers. Everyone loves a chef romance. Everyone loves the drama. So please check out... An Acquired Taste by author Kelly Kane. You can find Kelly's book in print, in ebook, and in audio. And you can follow Kelly at Kelly Kane Author on all socials. As always, the information on all of this and all of our sponsors is in show notes. Thanks to Kelly Kane for sponsoring the show. So she has a lot of very compelling reasons to not want to marry a Duke, not want to get involved with a man. And then, I mean, at the core of it, besides all of that, is that she loves Tori. And she doesn't see how she could possibly, like, get in the way of Tori's happiness, embarrass or hurt Tori, you know? So there's this other, like, so there's all of the, like, logical, emotional reasons that are hers, but then there's also this deep abiding love for Tori who she's like, well, you know, I can't screw this up for her. Like this is a train going down a track and there's no way for me to intercept it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, though it's, you know, it's, I mean, this motivation, it's so richly layered. Yes. And then there's Hunt. And then there's Hunt, right? And Hunt, is really fascinating to me because yeah. talk about a character who like at no point did I predict that he was going to do the things he was going to do for the reasons he did them. Yes. And it always made perfect sense, but like it just wasn't where my head was going, which is my favorite thing. Yes. Right? Same. Um, so Hunt is a Duke and he has been raised like what I loved about him from the jump and what I love, I mean, I don't think I loved it about him, but what I loved about what Diana was doing with him is, like, he is a duke raised to be a duke in a world that prizes, like, propriety and, you know, it has so many rules, rigid, rigid rules that he has never—it has never occurred to Hunt that he would not follow them. Right. Like, there's just no—there's— there's no place in Hunt's brain at the very start of this book for going off the rails at any point. No. And so he, like, meets this woman in a tavern. They are going to have this one-night stand. There's a reference to his mistress. Like, he has a mistress right. who he has been intending. He was basically, like, in his mind, he was like, I ultimately, I when I propose her, to Victoria, right? I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to set her aside. I'll give her a nice house, and that'll be the end of her. Right. And then, um, you know, he's going to go, and this girl is, like, perfectly fine. She doesn't – 
She's very, I sort of love Tori. She's really like awkward and shy around him because she clearly doesn't, she gets it from the jump that she like, these two are not right for each other. This is, I've caught a comet and I don't know what to do. I've got a tiger by the tail. (laughs) Exactly. And so, but he's like a duke. So he's like, well, I'm a duke and people are just like this with me. So like, she'll, like everything will be fine. She'll calm down and it'll be fine. And we don't have to like fall in love. And love is sort of, it's silly. It's not a thing that happens to people. But it does happen to some men in his family. Right? Mm-hmm. So there's this whole thing in his family where he's actually was the second son. And his older brother was this, like, wastrel, like, a, a, just a reckless man. And the way it has always gone in his family is that, like, there's, like, the reckless one and then the staid, upstanding one who kind of saves it all. And then another reckless one and then a staid, upstanding one right. who, who, you know. And he really is like, I, I have to, I can't be like my brother. Right. So he's haunted by that, but he's also haunted by his father. Yeah. Who is very much like, there's one point where he actually thinks about like marrying Lila, like spending his life with Leela. And I have to say, like, this is another, oh, I love a hero who just instantly is like push pull. Yes. You know, this is not a, this is a hero who, this is so hard to do in when you're writing. To write a hero who is simultaneously, all in mm-hmm. on the heroine and also, like, cannot get out from under the rigid rules and or loyalty of the yes. rest of the of, of his upbringing and, you know, identity. And so, and that's what we're dealing with here, right? Because there is a moment where he thinks about his father and his father basically saying, like, there are girls you cannot marry. Like, you cannot make a shop girl into a duchess. So, like, do whatever you need to do with whomever you need to do it with. But, like, remember what it takes to be a duchess. So there is this kind of sense that it will all, like, maybe, maybe that night, if that night had gone differently and, like, he hadn't ended up at the house and discovered that these two ladies were related, basically. Yeah. It might have all gone a different way. But the moment he sees... That his betrothed and the woman he loved are basically related. He's like, it can never be. I mean, it's like McGreeve brain. I mean, he's just like, yeah, he because, can't like, process it. There's no process. This goes back to like the rules and the rigidity of this society, which, you know, one of the things that I've seen, not to go back to Bridgerton, not to spend too much time on Bridgerton in this episode, but I think it's important, right? But like one of the things that I've seen a lot of discussion on online, and I've done a lot of interviews with, people in the media about is this, like, these historical rules, like, these, this sense of, like, in, in contemporary romance, I just finished a great book that was recommended to me by a Facebook, by a, by a Faded oh, Mates listener. It it's called Praise. It's terrific. The hero is the heroine's uh, ex-boyfriend's dad. It's fine. So it's basically, like, a sim. it's, like, not exactly the same, but it's similar, right? And, like, whatever, it's fine. Like, they sort it out, and it's fine, and no one's going to judge it, and it's just what it is. But once you put it down, take that same plot or this plot, and you set it down in historicals, the rules are so essential because, and I think that the only the only thread of this in Bridgerton that really, that really, really, really works for me is the Featherington thread mm-hmm. because it's the only one where you really feel like, oh, they could lose everything. The stakes are so do- high. If the marriage doesn't happen the way that they are, need it to happen. 
happen. And that's what we're talking about here because if he and Victoria break up, if he breaks off the marriage with Victoria, she's ruined forever. I mean, she is she becomes untouchable in many ways. Like she ends up not being able to marry wealthy, possibly not being able to marry at all. Because the question is, remember, we're talking about a patriarchal society, right? Where, like, cis white men get with titles get to, like, decide everything. And so the question always, even if there isn't a problem, quote, with her, is, well, what's wrong with her? Right? right, of course. And so, like, the things that get said about girls whose marriages are broken off are... D- damaging to the point of like that's it you 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 live alone forever and it's not just live alone forever y'all it's like you have no money no one to support you no one to protect you and like this is a world where th- those layers of protection are essential right women are not taught to protect themselves at this level of society this i mean all of this is caveated with like Right, Working course. class women were protecting themselves, like, on the streets, and they were, sure. you know, not in many, like, they were in harm's way often. But, like, these, this rarefied air is, is real. And I think Diana, like, layers this all really beautifully. It all makes such good sense, and it all feels so high stakes. Yes, right. And I think it's also, I think it's also really hard to be like, these are three good people. Right? Like, you don't dislike any of them. It's not like any of them are right, right, who want to do the right thing and are trapped by like circumstances and their own inability to kind of like see out of the box that they're in. But what's sort of perfect is Diana lays little breadcrumbs for Victoria from the very jump. Yeah. Now, this is where, okay. This is where it does the Bridgerton story, in my opinion, better. Well, and I will also admit, I. So it's a very clear from the beginning that um, Hunt's secretary, Mr. Foster, is Mr. You know, Foster, right? You know, Tori has no problem talking to him, and like they seem to have so no, much in they, common. They like read the same books. Oh and yeah, they, like, so to talk cute about right? books. <laughs> and I will you, and I was almost like, here's when I here's what I was thinking. I was like, oh okay, so somehow she's going to end up with him, and you know whatever, that's fine. But it. And she does, but in a way I did not expect at all, mm-hmm. which is basically the night of the betrothal ball, right? When he's the—it's going to be the formal announcement that they are betrothed. Hunt gets up with her brother, and they're like, you know, I announce that, you know, the Duke's going to marry my it's sister. Ha- like, it happens. It Like, it's ha- it happens in front of the whole world. And— then, you know, like the door is open and Tori's supposed to walk in and <laughs> she doesn't show up. And like a maid comes there. to the door and is like, I saw her get in a carriage with somebody else. And she like ran away. And Tori, ah. the entire time, who has been this little mouse, all of a sudden is the person of the three of them who can like take her destiny in her own hands and and be like, I, I am in love oh, with this other man. It's Freaking great. It's and great. And then you're like, so you're reading, and at this point you're like, I should say, this happens, and you have like a third of the book left. Like, it's not the end. And you're thinking, what on earth is going to happen, right? Because, of course, you're thinking, great, they can just be together now. Yeah. And then you're like, wait, Diana, what do you have in store for us, right? Yes. Because you would think, and Leela kind of does think. Like, yeah all right, Tori went off and she had happiness. And now, like, 
She never, Leela never thinks we can get married and I'm, no. She has no interest in being Duchess. And so she's sort of like, so now we can just do this. Like we can just, she has this beautiful house. He like, you know, is living his life, whatever. She's a widow. There's is, no one like, to We can do be, this. You know. We can just do it. And he leaves. Yeah. And he won't talk to her. He won't talk to and anybody. He, he doesn't give her, he doesn't leave a note or anything. He's just like. Gone. Well, because he, oh, the th- you know, the very thing that he spent the whole book avoiding, which is being painted as, like, reckless like his brother, has now happened, right? He has, he is now the one paying the price, which I'll admit I was fine with, right? Right? <laughs> I'm like, Deal I'm with sorry, it. but I was it's fine It's so with hard it. to be you, dude. Right? But what's fascinating is, again, that sort of, like, that distilled duke, dukedom, right? Like, that distilled era, the commitment to the rules and the strictures and the right. judgment of society, which I, I, it is so hard. Like, she, Diana writes so beautifully the the weight of it. Yes. And so they get, finally, Leela is like, I got to find him. Before he, like, kind of disappears, he they have a conversation, I, I guess, if I'm getting the timing right, because this plays into the other thing I want to talk about. But where he says to her, like, you told me the reason we couldn't be together was because you loved Tori and you just kept encouraging her and her happiness was primary and she needed to do whatever it was she needed to do and you were going to support her. But, like, you never said that to me. That happens after. That, that happens after? at his country house. Okay. Or, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is, like, right, like, in the discussion of this, yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. It, because it is a revelation, right? It's like, what about me? And, like, there is a part of you that's like, you're a grown dude. man. Shut up. You're a duke. But it was real. <laughs> I was. Yeah, he was upset. He was sad. Yeah. And he was feeling feelings that he did like. Well, he didn't like them. Not. I didn't like those feelings. And so, but I, we, what you skip the part, which is my favorite part. So also this, this has the sexiest golf I've ever. <laughs> sexy golf. I mean, you. yes. Extremely sexy golf in this book. All right. So tell me this part. Cause then I want to talk about my thing. I think it's going to be perfect. Yeah. So I really love the bit where, so she, here's what I loved. I love that she chased him down yes. and she was like, you don't get to decide this for us. Yeah. Like. You, and, it, and what's interesting is that she goes from concern, like, she starts out at his townhouse, and she's like, I'm trying to find him. Where is he? Mm-hmm. And his servants, again, oh, really yeah. beautiful, masterful articulation of the, the way language is, the way rules and language impact servants and callers here. Like, there are— yes. If you're interested in, like, the trappings of historical, like, Regency historicals, Diana really is doing it better than most people now. Yeah. That chapter where she's chasing him down and the servants are all like, he's not receiving, he isn't, and she's like, tell him I'm here, he will see me. And then suddenly yeah. it becomes, well, we he's not actually We prepared a room for you for tonight. Here. And she's like, wait, what? So then she chases him to the country because she's like, all right, finally she convinces, like, the the under butler or whatever at his townhouse to tell her where she is, where he is. And he's at at his country house. So she goes there and it's just, then it becomes clear that he's avoiding her, right? He, he, there's a room, but he doesn't want to see her. He's not at the meals that are served to her. And she goes from being concerned to being just plain pissed. Yes. 
And she finally, they're basically like a carriage is coming at noon to take you away from here. Right. And she's like looking out the window and she sees that motherfucker playing Playing golf. golf. God. Annoying then like it is now. And she is pissed. Yeah. And like so she, she goes from like I'm worried about him to I'm no. angry at him, and it's like bam. And the rage that she feels—I mean, like I felt it in my yes. chest, like yeah. deep in my chest. Like fuck this baby <laughs> who can't deal with his feelings yeah. and have a fucking conversation. Men, I'm talking to all of you here. This is like me getting my enraged well, moment out. But like, and so she chases him into his golf game. Yeah. <laughs> he's not playing golf. He's just by himself golfing. Yeah, right. He's just, right, hitting balls around. Yeah, and he goes, so she chases him out there. And that that asshole runs. Right. And finally, she's like, what are you going to do? Make me chase you into the woods. <laughs> and then she picks up a golf ball and throws it at his head. So satisfying. <laughs> I know. God, it doesn't connect, and that's unfortunate. But I love that Diana later, and there's a line later, like two pages later, where it's like, maybe if she'd actually hit him in the head with a golf <laughs> ball, she'd have knocked some sense into him. <laughs> and that's when he does the whole conversation that you were just saying, where he's like, yeah. you didn't love me right. and care about my life well being, the way right. you cared about hers. Shut up, jerk. This episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Avon Books, publisher of Ava Lee's The Good Girl's Guide to Rakes. Sarah, you know what I love more than anything else? Is it romance novels? <laughs> okay, yes. And specifically when a good girl decides she wants to experience some trouble. Oh, and in this book. Sex lessons. <laughs> all kinds of lessons. In this book, Celeste Kilburn is our society darling, uh, you know, quintessential good girl. But she is tired of having a spotless reputation. So she selects, I would say. Listen, I'm for selecting. I am too. I thought that was the right <laughs> verb. Her older brother's uh, real troublemaking best friend, yeah, Kieran Ransom, which I've been saying all morning, rhymes with handsome. And together, they are going to explore the seedier side of London. Yes, they are. <laughs> I want it. Gaming halls, parties, art salons. And of course, even though it's just supposedly for a good time, they're going to fall in love. Because it's never just for a good time, dummies. Of course not. <laughs> you can find The Good Girl's Guide to Rakes in print, in ebook, and in audio. You can also visit Ava Lee at avaleeauthor.com. As always, you can find links to purchase the book, to learn more about the book, and to Ava's social media sites in our show notes. Thanks to Avon Books for sponsoring the episode. So, listen, they they fuck. And Whew. he walks away. Now, like literally like leaves her on the ground and is like... Your carriage is coming at noon. See ya. Yeah. You got what you wanted. You came for my body again. Yes. Yeah. So, um, here's the Wow, what a dick. (laughs) I love it. I like, I want heroes like this. I want heroes who have to crawl over glass, ultimately. And look, I want to phrase everything I'm about to say as a preference. But what it really made me think about was a... A long kind of ongoing conversation that uh, Romance Landia is having about the third act breakup. Because they break up. Before doing I, that, actually, huh? Well, 
I, you know what? I guess here's what I'm – no, and I don't think it really has to be because I think, look, we all know that some people are write a great third act breakup and some people don't. Some people like it. Some people don't. Like, here's what it made me think about, though, because they break up in this book. I've made a list. As, or, or, like, essentially, in a real relationship with someone, you just kind of get trapped in these same patterns, right? And it's hard, I think, to make that work in a romance, like, right, um, because it's the falling in love part. But he essentially, like, four times in the book, like, walks away from her, right? Like, runs away, right? The morning after the one-night stand, he just disappears. Um, after he's dumped, he kind of disappears. They fuck in the woods, and he, like, leaves her on the ground, and he disappears. And then there's a, a fourth one, which is after she says, you know, we can't be together, and I'm going to still travel. And he basically, like, walks out at that moment. And one of the things I thought was really brilliant about this, and it made me think about, like, you know, some characters don't like breakups. And again, that's fine. I want to talk about why I do. Breakups are about when people, to me, it's like you have to see people decide to be together. And you have to see people make the same mistakes over and over again and keep deciding to be together. And I think that what this book does so brilliantly is show us There's like four times, essentially, the same thing happens. He walks away from her. It's different every time. It's driven by something different every time. And we see their ability to kind of like talk about it and move past it and talk about it and move past it is also different every time. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is so brilliant about like this book in particular is what it made me realize is – I understand when people are like, I don't like the third act breakup because it's just a plot device. But in a really good romance, these are emotional devices. And I don't think those are the same thing in a romance novel. No, the third act breakup is about feelings. Well, it's also, so you know, right now, like for the last couple of days, I've been like really hot about characters. Yes. In romance, like characterization in romance. Yes. And it doesn't matter why, but I just am hot about it right now. And I think that the struggle with this third act breakup right now is like somewhere in it's it's mixed up in this character conversation in some way. Because for me, the third act breakup is character, your past character distilled, yes. right? It is the last vestige of who you were before you loved. Mm-hmm. Right? Before you were loved, before you were partnered, the character you were on page one returns yes. at the third act breakup, and it gives you the option as a character to say, I am something new because I love and am loved and am in partnership, or I return to that safe comfort space of the past. Yes. And the breakup happens because our human knee-jerk reaction when faced with that choice is always going to be safety. Of course. And then you're like, safety isn't safe anymore because I only feel safe and loved and known when I'm with this person. When I'm with this other person. I have fucked up by leaving. Yes. And that's the thing, I think. Look, and again, I... I'm not, I would never, you know, I've read great books without it. I'm not trying to say, like, I'm not trying to, like, raise it from the dead. If you don't like it, you don't like it. But to me, these are the most powerful moments in a book. And, you know, people know I'm a scene rereader. 
often the things I reread are these moments because this oh, is the percent. moment of highest emotional intensity. Yes. This is literally what I come to romance for. And these – and so, you know, for this book to like and, – and I kept thinking about it, right? Like at any one of these points, they could have really just like broken up for good. She could have just yep. left him in his country house. Well, that scene, that scene before they fuck in the woods, Diana – I marked this because I thought it was, like, again, it's really deft, right? Yeah. He says to her, you know, she says, I miss, she's basically, like, bears herself to him. She's, like, she is very honest with him in that moment. And she's, like, I miss you. Yeah. Like, there's a a beautiful moment right before this where she says, like, can't we be friends? Like, can't we even have friendship? Anything. Because we have, we have kinship. Like, we have we are something is special about us, and he's like, we can't be friends. And she's like, I miss you. And it's like this moment of pure honesty, and he is so just, just constipated emotionally, right? And he says, he basically Harry and the Hendersons her, <laughs> and he's yeah. like, the line is like, uh, I it's too late. I no longer feel the same about you. I have no tenderness left in me. I might hate you, right? Which is him absolutely turning away from her and from possibility. And she says, you don't hate me. You're afraid of me. Yep. And, like, if there is anything more human in a relationship, or a young relationship, then I fear— the feelings that I feel yes. for you, I fear what they will do to the person I think I am. Yes. I yes. fear how you have broken and restitched me. Yes. And and at this moment, I desperately want to just go back. I might not yeah. have been happy, but at least I was not standing on the edge of something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I and so that, like for me when you look at like these four breakups right like they're very different each time like the emotional thing that causes it is different each time right and I I think it really like just goes to show you the power like the power of these moments and I just think it's reductive to be like well those shouldn't have happened because why can't they just talk it out well <laughs> because when they talked it when she yes. tried to talk it out he was like right. no I'm not. No, no. I mean, and like, like I, maybe yes. other people have more have better communication skills than I do. But like, yeah. I certainly have had had moments in my yes my adult life where like I have tried to talk it out with somebody and I can't and they get it have done. said yeah. no. Yeah, yeah. So I just think you know, like to me, one of the things I just found, I this it really worked for me at every level, and the fact that I mean, so. After sex in the woods, right, they go back to the house and he is like, you know, the carriage leaves at noon, you're going to leave. And he goes up and takes a bath. And you know what else I really like? We don't really see him like thinking it through. It's just Mm -mm. he comes downstairs. At first I was like, I'm curious about that choice because maybe I want to see him kind of realizing like I was like a doofus. And he comes downstairs and he's kind of like, where's, you know, Lady Devon? And, you know, the servant's like, yeah, she's – out getting in the carriage. Yeah, you Harry and the Hendersons her. Yes. And he, <laughs> listen, he falls to his knees mm. and begs her to stay. And she's like, and I love what she, she's like, 
you look ridiculous. Get up. Yeah. <laughs> And She's like so the, the butler and the footmen are there, and and the, but the thing that I also really loved about it is like he does this, and still five chapters later, when she's like, "Look, I'm still gonna travel," he's like, "Fuck you," and walks out again. He did he really like? Is he fixed? Did he learn his lesson? No, for his entire life, right? For their entire relationship, this struggle is gonna be where he's like, "I am hurt. I'm gonna run." That's who he is. And it doesn't just magically go away because he's in feelings love. feel reckless to him. Feelings yes. feel uh, feeling. Look, feelings feel reckless to all of us, right? But for people who have been taught from birth that like feel, and this is this is masculine toxic masculinity, right? Lee Ch- Jack Reacher does not feel feelings. No, he literally because runs. feelings are reckless, and Jack Reacher is in pure ultimate control all the time. Yeah, right, and the. And this is where we are. Like, hero, this hero can't get out of his lockbox. Yeah. And we see it over and over again. I love that, Jen. I love that you just said that he, that's going to be the thing that they fight about forever. Because, like, I mean, anybody who's been in a relationship forever sort of knows, like, there's that, oh, here we are. We're doing this again. Okay, here we are. <laughs> oh, And it again. just feels like, you know— you know, we're all just crazy in our relationships. Do yes. we're doing this? We're we're going around on this merry-go-round again. Yeah. So, I mean, I think then you know the end is she really does leave for you know Morocco and he cool. has great he has, job. He has to come to her, right? He mm-hmm. has to show like because she fucking deserves it. Yeah, because they should always come to us, right? <laughs> But, I mean, in this case, he has to show, like, okay, look, I might freak out and run away, but I'm going to run back to you, too. Mm-hmm. Always. Right? I just need a second. I need a second to play golf in yeah. my field. In my field. <laughs> and you know what? I I think – so I just want to say, like, in terms of if you are a person who's kind of like, I'm not sure – about this. And look, like I said, if it doesn't They're work not for you, I know, but I guess I would just say like to me when I stop and think about this um it's an emotional moment, right? It's a moment of decision about feelings. It's not just a, you know, and you know, look, if it just feels like a blame plot device, then maybe it's poorly written, but Here's not- the truth. Uh-huh. As somebody who Obviously, like fucking loves a third act oh, breakup. Yeah. In fact, there's no McLean book where there aren't two of them, right? Like Less. it's a big, it's a, <laughs> it's a one-two punch of you thought they're back together, right. but guess what? They're not. Um, I will say that in Heartbreaker, which is coming out this summer, in the manuscript, the original draft of the manuscript, there are there, there were two, and one of them got taken out because it was. I realized it was pure plot. Yeah. Like, it was just so that I could do it again. Right. Right. And so the one that I think is authentic and important remains. Yeah. And the second one. And the way that I chose as a writer is I had that that conversation with myself. Like, where is the point where we choose? Yeah. And you know what? And maybe it doesn't have to be a breakup. There's lots of ways to choose. But. Well, yeah. I mean, nobody. Like, look, I. It's always, it's different in my books. It's different in Diana's books. But, like, if you're writing a contemporary with a third act breakup, like, it can just be a moment. It just ha- it's just the a moment. Choice, right? It's the third act And I do choice. think that's yeah. part of it. I think a lot of times when we talk about the third act breakup, I think we 
I think especially writers who are still learning their craft and like, I mean, we're all still learning our craft. I shouldn't phrase it that way, but like writers who are still trying to like find sea legs, right, in the genre, I think often, and we've talked about this before, but the instinct is to pull that punch because we don't want to, you know, we don't want to just do a thing because that's how it's done. But the reality is, is that if you, if, if you are throwing that punch, like throw it. Yeah. It's okay. Look, if you are in a long-term relationship, you have had a third act breakup. What was it? Right. And maybe it wasn't like, well, we threw I threw a plate at him and he walked out the door. Like right. And this is true in your friendships. This is true with your, I mean, like any relationship, not just a romantic one. There's those moments Mm -hmm. where you're kind of like, do I have to keep doing this? God, I mean, like if you're you're married, I mean, I've been married for however many years I've been married. We have a third act breakup all the time. Nobody, I don't throw a plate. No one walks out the door. But like, you know, you have those moments of testing. Exactly. It's a test. And you know what? Look, I do think though the difference between book like romance novel third act breakups and life third act breakups is like it's more a test in real life yeah. but maybe it's more a test in contemporaries too one of the reasons i wanted to talk about it now is because you know here we see these these characters essentially it's the same thing over and over again yeah and why 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 is it the same thing? Why is this the thing they're grappling it's his with? Wound, right? right? Yeah. And how is it playing out each time to the point that where it happens in number four, we are really ready to be like, okay, this might still keep happening, but I as a reader believe that they are going to keep getting through it. And I wouldn't have felt that way after one or two, and definitely maybe not after three. Dramatic as and much as I loved him falling to his knees and begging her, I was like, this No, is she didn't want it either that right. way. Right. This is not how she wants it. It's not how I want it. It's not how he wants it either. No, it's so interesting because in that moment, I, you know, on the on the reread, I paused and I thought about it. And of course, like I love a hero on his knees all the time, always. But the um it's not it's not right then. No, it's not. I mean, not and I don't mean the writing, I mean like the response. Yes. And so that's that's the part that I think is really, again, unusual in a romance novel yeah. to see the evolution of their relationship playing out in breakup after breakup in a book. Because, you know, the, the kind of common wisdom of the moment is readers don't want them. Listen, wait a second. That's not the common wisdom. I, I, I object. <laughs> I object okay. point of order. Yeah. That's not the common wisdom, and I want to stop that from being good because I hate the it. view. <laughs> because if you look at the books that sell, yeah, this goes back to it, right? Like we talked right. about this before. There is what is happening in Romance Landia, yeah, and there is what is happening in the world with readers, yeah, and those two things are different, yes, and like readers are not. Romance Landia. Right. Like there are readers in Romance Landia. That's I'm not suggesting that there aren't. But like Romance Landia does not speak for all readers, right? Who go into bookstores, the lion's share, the the largest majority of I mean, yeah. When I say that, I mean like 98% of the people who buy your books have never been on Romance Twitter. Yeah. They yeah. don't 
care. They don't know about it. They don't care about it. Right. Absolutely. They're not listening to the discourse. They just want the book that makes them feel feelings. And so when we say, so I want us to be very careful about saying like. Well, I think that's why I, like, I agree with you, obviously, but I feel like this is sort of the thing is like. I feel like Colleen Hoover is is selling like 50 million copies a year. Yeah. And and like third act breakups exist. Yeah. Those Bridgerton, those Bridgerton books, third act breakups exist. Like Sarah, I think that's my point. But like, I think the thing is like, if you feel like it serves the emotional needs of your characters and then do it. Yeah. And don't talk yourself out of it. Yeah, and if you don't want to do that, if you want to write, like, a soft, like, quiet romance where, like, it doesn't happen, my argument is just, like, it's happening. It happens. Because if you didn't if you didn't write some version of it, even, like, a pared-down, just, like, quiet little simmer of a third-act breakup, <laughs> you're not actually writing conflict in any way. Internal conflict. Well, I think that's the thing— to me, is I guess maybe that's like the core of it. I'm saying this is an important moment of internal conflict where we really see characters deciding. Yeah. Or, I mean, this right? if you're writing, if you're writing like um romantic suspense, right? Or you're writing, look, if you're writing um, you know, man against the world, right, against nature, or us, uh, you know, we together against nature, for example, like your third act breakup might be like, oh, well, one of us almost died. Right. Right. Which is a different kind of thing, but it's still a third act breakup. Look, there's lots of really interesting and smarter people writing about, like, excuse me, different kinds of storytelling. No, I'm serious. Like, there's <laughs> oh, a book- about, oh, I thought you were going to say about no, third no, act no, breakups. No. I was like, we're no. pretty smart about this. We're pretty smart about it. There's a book I'm reading right now. <laughs> different kinds called, of storytelling. Yes, of course. Called Craft in the World by Matthew Salesis, which is all about essentially like, you know, there's different kinds of stories, and you know, why do we cling to conflict? And I'm I'm reading. It's really interesting. So I'm you know. We're not the final word on this. There's plenty of people talking about this. But I also feel like this is a great book for, like, when it works, why it works. That's all. That's all I want to say, because it works. Okay, can I say one other thing that made me laugh about this I have this other book? stuff I want to talk about, too, yeah. Okay, I really—it cracked me up that he kept calling his penis his prick in this book. I just want to say it. I haven't seen that in a while. Prick. Really? Yeah. I feel like that's— well, like, we're really firm, firmly yeah. in the cock era, don't you think? All right. Just, uh, I yeah, thought I'd throw that out I guess. There. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I support you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, while we're on the subject of pricks and cocks, can we talk about sex? Yes. <clears throat> it's hot. This book's hot. Man, you want to talk about a dude who goes down. Oh, my God. <laughs> Loves it. Can't get enough of it. Mm. Perfect. Like, thinks about it all the time. It's basically like, oh, you want me on my knees again in a different way? I got you. I love him. <laughs> yeah. It's so hot. It's so hot. A plus. A plus, yeah. I mean, I think it's also <laughs> when you, you know, it's also interesting is when you like lead with sex, which it does, like it's a one night stand book. This is one of the things I also want to talk about. Sometimes it doesn't really get put on page in the same way. This is like luscious. It's four or five chapters, the one night stand. It's interesting, right? Because it, could be considered erotic mm-hmm. if we go by, you know, the Nikki Sloan rules of erotic romance, right? Which are, if you take the sex out of the book, it doesn't work anymore. Right. And I think that is absolutely, ha- that's, that happens in this book. Even though it's not like, 
it is about quality and not quantity, this eroticism. When they finally can be together again, it's kind of like, well, what do you do now, right? We've already seen them in bed together. And I think it is really deeply, it's still so deeply sexy. It's so much more intimate. And then the scene when it's in the woods, which is like this devastating scene, it's like so sharp and short and like angry mm-hmm. The almost. pacing of it is really tight and yeah. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. This book's brilliant. It's great. And she wants him so much in that. That scene in the woods is just. Yeah. He's such an asshole. He is. Wow. What a jerk. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> what a jerk. I love him. <laughs> what else was on your list to talk about, Sarah? I want to talk about um, how well she she prepares us for the rest of the books in the series. Oh, yes. Which is important because the final book in the series, I mean, or the the most recent book in the series, I don't know if she's doing anymore, but I hope she is. But um, the most recent book in this series is out was out uh, last week of March. So it's is new on shelves. You should get it. And so I think I think two things that that I was thinking about. So one, each one of these books tackles uh, gives us a heroine with a job. Yes. Right? So in this one, we have a heroine who is a travel writer. In the second book in the series, which is called The Viscount Made Me Do It, we have uh, London's finest bone setter, who happens to be a lady. I'm all, not that kind but, of bone. Sorry. N- not that kind of bone. Well, I, I bet I she, mean, sets, I bet that she sets, sets that bone, too. <laughs> I mean, she's very good with bones. So we're 12. And she is... With Griff, we haven't talked about Griff at all. Oh, God. Well, listen. <laughs> Here, I'm like, oh, I love a – God. Like Praise everyone, Griff. Everyone thinks he murdered his parents. Yes. <laughs> like, like the second that came out, I was like, well, I mean, gone I, for I Griff. I want it right now. Exactly. <laughs> God, tortured man. <laughs> what I love about the end the end of the blurb for The Viscount Made Me Do It is um, Hannah has a gift for fixing fractured people, mm. but can she mend his broken heart? Oh. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. then the, the third Get book it. is her brother. The Marquis made me do it. No. The Mark that the Viscount. The the Marquis. The Marquis makes his move. And there's a heroine who is a lady map maker. I mean, these are just cool jobs. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. It is. And when we talk about heroines who have cool jobs, they can exist in historicals too. Absolutely. And clearly the research is like remarkable in all these books. Diana also writes historical fiction. She writes mysteries. Um, They're always like, which is why the pacing of these books feels so great to me because I think it's her mystery training that's giving us kind of revelations, slow, lovely revelations as a reader. The final, like the one last thing I, I really, I really liked about this book, right, is we talked at the beginning about how Leela is like judged for being someone who's different and other, but she Mm -hmm. doesn't actually, in England at least, have any experience outside of her grandmother with, like, being part of that community. And at the end, she goes to Manchester, and she is spending time with, like, the big extended family of her grandmother and her, you know, aunts and uncles and cousins, and, you know, she's really experiencing her culture now, not just as, like, you know, something is far away I have to go see, but it's something that I can experience right here 
at home. And I thought that part was just really beautiful. I just really loved it. I loved her. I, I, I like, I wanted that for her. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because uh, Hunt shows up. And he has a moment, which I think is a very common experience. It's I've certainly had it for a white person, which is like the first time you're the only white person somewhere where you're the minority. Not just like a minority, but like the only one. And he is, he like stops to notice that. And I think it's a very common to imagine that like, oh, he would have been like, well, you can go see them, but I'm not going to. Right? Like he's just uncomfortable. But instead he sort of promises her that, He's going to, you know, he's going to be a part of that. That's her life, too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think that those are the moments, like, those are the things we need from him so that at the end we can really believe that he's going to, like, not run away anymore. Yeah. Right? And they're partners. Yes. Yes. They can do this. They can pull this off. Yeah. So this is a good place for us to talk about, I think, language and the the way that Leela Leela brings Ara- and Diana bring Arabic into the book because so Leela has this really interesting backstory, which is that she's sort of been um, she's had this barrier between she she's been hidden from her or her culture and her identity and her background and you know everything about where she's come from in the world and the, and her family has been kind of hidden from her for so long, and then in these last two years she's gone to find herself in a lot of ways and like better understand her yes. this part of her yeah her culture, culture and her you know the 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 past that has made her and it's fascinating right because she she was born and raised an english woman and then she became an a titled english woman and a member of the aristocracy and then she goes off to um, Middle East, and she tours around the Middle East and writes this writes this book and this travelogue, and she learns this very complicated language, and she comes back, and the book is very full of this language in a way that is sort of surprising because of her character and her character's backstory. But I thought it was so beautifully done as as sort of a nod to, like, the wide world that opens to you when you start to embrace, like, the culture and past that you did not know. Yes. Um, and so I thought a lot about, like, how I, – I mean, I've talked before about, like, my my Italian was not my first language, but, like, my father is was Italian and, and like, born and raised there. And, and this sort of sense of, like, Italian being bedrock to the language being a part of me, even though it's not a language I speak frequently or that I have spoken my whole life. And I felt really connected in a lot of ways to Leela as this character who, who is finally like has this wide world open to her. And then is as though that is not enough is now giving this beautiful wide world to yeah like sharing it right well and like i think that one of the things i kept thinking is imagine you know she didn't know anything about this right it had been hidden from her kind of on purpose her mom was like it's gonna be easier for everybody if this just isn't part of your life right and then when she returns i found myself thinking like of course she would want to cling to it right she doesn't yeah, and she would be a culture. she would be afraid of losing it again well there's that beautiful moment where they talk so 
she has a she has no hair. She is she yes. removes the hair on her body and right at the very I mean they have sex in chapter one. So, <laughs> so like she strips and he's like, whoa, what is happening? This is yeah. Wonderland. <laughs> and she's like, my mother's people remove the hair from their body. And it's sort of, uh, and then he goes down her and it's great and whatever. And so, and then, but then it comes back around, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's a scene later where they're taking more time to talk and he about asks it, yeah. her about it. And she talks about it. Like, the communal experience of, like, women removing hair together as, like, a cultural, like, thing that women do together. And it's really beautiful. And, like, this – she – you can hear it in her voice. Like, there's a a moment of, like, real joy when she thinks about this. Yeah. Yeah. I thought – I love that. I really did. Really. I thought the the characterization of that kind of, like, a a new – somebody who – like finally feels like she's found a part of herself that's been missing was right. really powerful. Yes, and I think that's why it's both like that he sees that in that moment, but also when she's like with her family in Manchester yeah. that, you know, like she doesn't have to carry the this by herself, like, right? Like she now has people in her life and they share this with her. I just, mm-hmm. I love that. I really did. I thought it was... Really powerful and really beautiful, right? And, you know, the way that it came out and, like, the food she wanted to eat and, like, her, like, just love of, like, you know, olive oil, which, you know, like, the things where you're like, wow, that would be magical. And to me, it's just, like, olive oil, right? Yeah. And and that that part, too, I I thought it was terrific. I really loved it. I want to talk about the most recent book, The Mark West Makes His Move, um, because I know that our our listeners who are big historical lovers are going to f- flip over this because the hero who is her brother is is uh, Leela's brother is a reclusive a reclusive Marquess um who basically never shows his face anywhere because reasons I mean obviously you can see because of lots of reasons and he disguises himself as a footman Listen, the minute I read that, I was like, The heroine's house. To basically, like, expose this map-making scandal. (laughs) Whatever, it's fine. (laughs) Listen, disguised as a footman, I was like, okay. Listen, there is no thing I like more in romance (laughs) than the moment where the the heroine is like, How dare you be a duke? I love it. I fell in love with a footman and now you're a duke. What the hell? Get out. I love it. I love it. I'm so excited. So, yeah, I'm about to order the rest of these books in the series for sure and have a pleasant weekend of reading ahead of me. Listen, Diane, do not sleep on Diana Quincy. She is great. I have talked uh, recently, last a couple of episodes ago, I talked about my favorite of her books, which is a governess story called The Duke Who Ravished Me. She just, she is one of the great ones right now. Um, And also writing these, like, historicals for a new world. Yes. And this is a thing that we've been talking about, too, kind of offline and sometimes on the podcast. But I think a lot, obviously, because of my job, about what it is that is keeping historicals from TikTok and from new readers and from, you know, booksellers and 
And yes, you could, it's partially the covers and partially the format and partially, you know, lots of little, lots of things. Yeah. But I do think that a lot of it comes with like, well, they feel old fashioned and they feel like they're not modern and they feel like they're not intersectional and they feel old. And this book does not feel old. No, not at all. It feels like it takes all the best of that sort of dramatic, old-school fantasy feelings and packs it with this, like, very modern, beautiful storytelling. I I could not be more thrilled. Oh, P.S., the audiobook is really good. It's the narrator. Oh, who is it? I don't listen, Sarah. My goodness, that's I, a question. I don't know. I just, you know these I things. Know. You care about these I things. I do. Um, I don't I know. just try to, I try to give you yes, what you love. I, I try to honor what you like, look. Jen. I'm like, let me look. <laughs> you know what I liked about it is I don't think. It's, it's Zara Hampton Brown. Yes. Is her name. She, like she does the, you know, Hunt's voice and that part's always like a little sometimes iffy. But she, her, I don't know. She has like a very lilting voice. Did she do? Um, She's also the n- audiobook narrator for Neon Gods. Oh, okay. She's terrific. I mean, it was just like one of those things where I was like, oh, I would listen to one of these again. So it was really, it was really fun. She does, um. Just like a lilting kind of very pleasant voice. I enjoyed it a lot. Well, I'm really glad for you. (laughs) I am. It was terrific, Sarah. I'm really very happy you enjoyed it. I am unsurprised. It is, you. I knew you were going to love it. Yeah, it made me think a lot. I mean, I love a book where I'm just like, oh, I have all these interesting thoughts. Do we know what we're reading next? Are we doing Julie James? Okay, so we're going to do Something About You by Julie James. I'm going to hit the Chicago angle hard. Ooh. Oh, yeah. She's well, a, she's, Chica- she's a Chicagoan, she's so a I think Chicago you'll probably and you can Correct. Tell. Yeah. Um, and you know what? If Julie James is, I think, just like a really gr- – I mean, Julie James knows the job, as we say here on Faded Mates. Yeah, they are – it's an enemies to lovers romance. She is a U.S. attorney, and he is an FBI agent, and he believes that she wrecked the, like, crackdown that would have like made, made his us. career three years earlier. So he has it out for her, and it's great. It is great. Perfect. Um, Sarah? I think we did my love. I think, I think we did the job. Thank you to this week's sponsors for uh okay, I don't know what I'm saying. Maybe you should say <laughs> that part. I'm like blah, blah. I think we did the job too. Don't forget to support our sponsors this week. Avon Books, publishers of Ava Lee's A Good Girl's Guide to Rakes, and Kelly Kane, author of An Acquired Taste. As always, you can find information about Ava and Kelly and their books in show notes. And the best way for you to support the podcast is to support our sponsors. So thanks so much. Have a great week, everybody. 